But take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus speaks this to his disciples right before his arrest and crucifixion. We talk about anxiety, they're going to have some anxiety. They're about to see trouble and tribulation firsthand. But what I want to point out is how he contrasts himself and the world. The world is, by its very nature, corrupted ever since sin entered in. And because of that, it's going to give us tribulation. That's just what you're going to get. There's always, always going to be some sort of trouble. I heard a preacher one time describe this. And he said, you know, we like to think that life is sunny and occasionally some storms roll through. But in this world, it's more like life is stormy and occasionally there's breaking clouds. But Jesus has overcome all that. In him is found peace. He's not only the way we have peace through God for the forgiveness of our sins, but he's the one who brings peace into our lives in the midst of a very anxious world. And so the question arises then, at least the question in my mind arises, how do I get some of that? How do I access that peace? Jesus is our peace, he says. He has overcome the world. But how do I get some of that peace for myself? In a world that is in a perpetual state of falling apart around us, we want to experience the reality of that peace in our daily lives. Not, not peace as some, some principle or platitude or some ethereal concept out there like, you know, some sort of weird Deepak Chopra thing sitting around. You know, whatever. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking real, internal, Jesus peace in my heart. I want to download some of that peace. And so this is the subject of the first part of chapter 4 of Philippians. Some of you were wondering, when are we going to get to Philippians? Now, throughout this letter, Paul has talked about his struggles, right? His conflicts. He's imprisoned in Rome for the testimony of Jesus. He's warned of people who seem like sheep, but they got the teeth of wolves. And they've come to cause trouble. But now, he comes to this section in chapter 4, as he's kind of wrapping up the letter, that tells us how in the midst of, of all the struggles and trials and even the very real possibility that without warning he could lose his head and be executed, how he keeps his peace in the midst of that. And the first thing he's going to tell us is we need to stand firm in the Lord. Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Odia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, Paul's bringing the letter to a conclusion. He reminds them to stand firm in the Lord. He says, don't let 
people shake your confidence in the Lord Jesus. Remember that whatever peace we're going to have, whatever peace is coming to you in this life, it's going to come from Jesus. Because he's the one that's overcome the world. Then he adds this little note about these two women in the Philippian church. They had some sort of conflict. Now usually, if you notice in Paul's letters, the little personal notes come right at the end of the letters. You know, greet so-and-so, and tell so-and-so when I see him, I'm going to cuff him upside the head, and, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> but here, I think he puts it before he gets to the very end to remind us that even among commendable people, there can be conflict. And the community can and should play a role in resolving those conflicts. Notice that both of these women, Paul commands as fellow laborers of the gospel. They had worked with him and, and probably with Timothy and Epaphroditus and whoever Clement was and all these guys. They had worked together for the gospel. But something happened. And now they've got some sort of disagreement. And the disagreement is serious enough. And they are prominent enough in that church that news of it has gotten all the way to Paul in Rome. So this isn't like, you know, they, they didn't like which kind of creamer was bought for the coffee. There's enough of a disagreement here that these two prominent, Jesus-loving women, these weren't the wolves, you know, in sheep's clothing type of people. These were, these were good people. It's gotten to Paul, and it is most likely serious enough that it is disturbing the peace in the Philippian church. And so Paul encourages the church to be involved in helping to resolve this conflict. He says, y'all need to get together and you need to encourage them and help them resolve this conflict. Now that is a massive contrast to what happens in modern churches when there is a conflict between people, especially two prominent people. So often when disagreement arises in a modern church, instead of seeking resolution and the peace of all the people involved, sides are chosen, battle lines are drawn, and the conflict escalates. Instead of everybody getting together and talking about it around the community table, war is declared. And Paul offers a different way here. He says, Y'all need to get together, bring the community together in Christ, and seek to find a resolution instead of trying to go for a victory where one faction has to lose so the other has to win. You know, those kind of conflicts, rarely are there ever long-term winners. Somebody might win in the short run, but everybody loses in the long run. There's usually just fallout and loss. And Paul offers a better way. I feel, as he talks about this in the church, this is so true in, in families and workplaces also. So often when there's conflicts, conflicts within a family, conflicts in the workplace, few, thing, few things are going to disturb your peace more than that, right? When you have a family or a work conflict, that's, that's going to that, that's going to threaten to take your peace right out the door. But the other thing is, there's so often among many people, I'm not saying you or me, I'm saying other people, so you're aware of it. To win at all costs. Now I know none of you ever in any of your marriages, for example, would ever have tried to win at all costs with your spouse. So I'm saying other people. But you know, rarely are there long-term winners in those sorts of conflicts. Our 
need to be right or to win so often overrides our sensibility to understand that sometimes it is just better to enjoy the peace and find some cooperation. If there's one thing that I know I have grown in over the decades, is that I do not need to be right to win every argument. I just don't. I'm not saying I don't want to. I don't need to. You know what? You might disagree, I'm just gonna go, cool, bro. In fact, if we're ever talking about something, I'll let you go, cool, bro. You should know right there, I disagree with you, but that's okay. <laughs> it's a sure sign. It's like I told Joe one time. Said anytime you ever see me in a sermon and I walk over here to this side and I come and put my hand on the piano, it means I'm going off script and whatever I'm about to talk about is not in the script. Which that was not in the script, but there you go. Yeah, by the way, Chango, cool, bro. You know I disagree with you, but it's whatever. I just I don't care. Great. You pull me wherever you want. You know, it's all good. I mean, I'm fine. You want to believe Rogue One is a good Star Wars movie? Cool, bro. <laughs> it was terrible. Some of you like Rogue One? Somebody, did somebody like Rogue One? They, uh, cool, bro. <laughs> I just rather have peace. A lot of marriages and a lot of relationships could be a lot better if we could let go of our need to win all the time and our need to be right and just need to get our way and just humble ourselves, which Paul's been talking about all throughout this letter, and just let some things go so everybody can have some peace. Don't always have to be right. Don't always have to win every argument. We're standing firm in the Lord despite whatever conflicts are brewing around us. And there's going to be conflicts for sure. We stand firm in the Lord. When there's conflicts, sometimes we just got to let it go. But that still doesn't tell me, I mean, that's great, but that, that doesn't tell me how to access that peace that I'm looking for. I mean, thanks, Paul. I appreciate that. But I'm, I'm still looking. I want, I want that peace that Jesus is talking about. But Paul fortunately picks that up for us, starting in verse 5. It's probably some very familiar verses where he talks about peace through prayer. Let your reasonableness, <coughs> your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, the reasonableness here he's referring to is talking back to this conflict between Eodia and Syntyche. Conflicts have a tendency to escalate sort of out of proportion very quickly. Okay? started out as a disagreement over where to go on vacation and pretty soon like every past conflict for the last 20 years is being brought up and you're burning the house down. I have a friend and it's no one you know so don't start trying to figure it out. <laughs> I mean I do have other friends besides you. I know that shocks them. <laughs> Most of you are like, what? <laughs> We're not even your friends. How could you have <laughs> But, But unfortunately his family is experiencing some massive family conflict. And what's very apparent as we talk about it is that almost no one is thinking reasonably. 
It is pure emotion right now. And it has been stoked up to a white hot fury. Every time they get together, they start rehashing what went on, and then everybody gets upset again, and then just, it's, oh, it goes over and over again, right? And interpersonal conflicts get like that when people stop being reasonable. Sometimes you gotta take a time out for a day or a week or whatnot, cool down, and approach conflict reasonably with the goal of restoration goal of the restoration of the peace. Now that's hard to do when our peace is being destroyed by massive anxiety. So Paul tells us we need to go to the source of peace if we want peace. Remember, Jesus is our peace because he's the one that's overcome the world. And our access to Jesus comes through prayer. We are to come to the Lord in prayer, he says. We're to bring all those anxiety-inducing and peace-disrupting issues and people to him and leave them there and ask him to work. Not to be anxious about those things, but instead to take them to him. And then you get the peace of God. The peace of God which passes all understanding, surpasses, beyond understanding. Now, I want to take a minute to remind us what peace is and what peace is not. Because a lot of people have the idea that peace is like the absence of any struggle, that it's the absence of conflict, that it's a state of being where everything is exactly the way we want it to be. So I pray, I take my anxieties to the Lord, I'm looking for the peace of God, but what I really want is I want that person to do what I tell them to do or to agree with me. That's what we're really praying. That's not going to get you the peace that passes all understanding. That's just going to get you more frustration. Because that person's also praying that you'll agree what they want them to or what they want you to do. <laughs> See, we confuse peace with happiness, with having everything exactly as we want it. Peace is not happiness. We can be unhappy about a situation, but we can be at peace with that situation. Paul was at peace. Beck even could rejoice while in prison for the gospel and for the Lord. Now that doesn't mean he wouldn't have been happier had he been free. I mean, if they'd have come the next day, right, and said, hey, Paul, you know what? This whole thing was just a big misunderstanding, bro. Here's, here, here's a bag of Roman coins to pay me for your time. Go back to doing whatever you're doing. You're out of here. You don't think he would have been happier than he was not being able to go where he wanted to do what he wanted? Of course he would have been. But he was still at peace. Peace isn't even necessarily joy. But it can lead to joy. Peace, which is shalom in the Old Testament, irene in the New, isn't, is not an absence of anything that we don't want or like. Peace is an internal state of calm and well-being where my heart is not troubled by those things. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. That's what he's talking about. My heart isn't troubled by them. I think I've talked about before, the word that we translate anxiety in Greek, or anxious, that family of words, literally means in Greek to run around in your mind. That's what anxiety means. And if you've ever been anxious about something, you know that's exactly what anxiety feels like, right? So just keep running stuff around in your mind. Run, 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 run. It's like a bad NASCAR race. Making a left turn. 
bad if the NASCAR race causes you anxiety. <laughs> peace means that your driver doesn't have to win, and you're still at peace. That's it. Runner on ice. Peace is when the running stops, and we sit down by the cool waters, and we take off our running shoes, and enjoy the sound of the river. Peace is Mozart in my heart while ACDC's on radio. <laughs> Peace is where we're aware of the troubles around us, but standing firm in the Lord, we are not disturbed or shaken by them. We are assured that our God is in control and has our absolute best interests in mind. And peace in Jesus comes through taking everything to him in prayer and then believing he has it all under control and wants the best for us so that we receive his peace, which is by definition supernatural. It says it surpasses all understanding because it's not something that's natural. Our natural state is worry, anxiety, and hurry, and conflict, and all that kind of stuff. That's why this peace is surpasses understanding. You can't try to figure it out. You have to receive it. And once you've had this peace that passes all understanding, that I received through prayer, because I'm refusing to be anxious, instead I'm going to give it all to Jesus, who I trust, and I'm standing firm in, and I know he's got it all under control. And he wants my best. Once I have that peace, it needs to be maintained. And guess who our greatest enemy in maintaining our peace is? <gasps> I heard it. Ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're our worst enemy when it comes to keeping our peace. It's us. That's why Paul continues in this passage with the idea of peace through redirecting our minds. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Now prayer is the first part one of restoring our inner peace. Part two is controlling our thoughts. Remember, anxiety is when things run around in our minds. Well, one way is that little NASCAR race that's going on in your head. But you can wave the red flag and stop it. It's by redirecting and controlling what we think about. I want to remind you about two things in this passage. In the first part, Paul says, do not be anxious. In this section, he says, think about these things. Both of those are commands. What that means is, we have a choice. You have a choice. We're not subject to the whims of every thought that pops into our minds. We can control what goes in, and we can control what we focus on. If we are told to do something in Scripture, that means with God's help we can do it. It doesn't necessarily mean you can do it on your own. It means with God's help you can do it. Paul says, 
control our inputs, and we need to control what we think about. We need to put in things that are true and honorable and beautiful and encouraging. In other words, we're to fill our minds with positive and good and helpful things. Things that will create a desire to think less anxious thoughts and keep our hard, prayed for peace intact. This means, you know what? Maybe you need to stop thinking about the conflict for a while. Maybe you need to just, to just, just stop rehashing everything. Stop rehashing it in your mind over and over and over and over and over, and over again. Maybe you need to turn off the TV. Maybe you need to get off the social media for a while. I mean, you know what? If I never again see CNN or Fox News or any of the rest of them for the rest of my life, I'll be a happier man for it. They're just fear mongers. They're getting up anxiety and conflict. They ruin my peace. I'd just rather have inner peace than know every detail of the war in Ukraine. I don't want to have to be anxious about it. And the constant state of the world affairs. God is in control of all those things. There's nothing I can do about it anyway. Other than pray. In which case, I'm going to pray about it and leave it with God. Social media is even worse. You may or may not realize this. But the algorithms that control what you actually see on Facebook or you know, Instagram or Twitter or it's TikTok, whatever it is. Okay. They are actually designed to do two things. They are designed to keep us clicking for more on that site, and they are designed to drive advertisements to us that will get us to click on those things and buy things we do not need. That is what they are designed for. Everything on Facebook and TikTok and the rest are designed to keep us on edge trying to get the next little dopamine hit all the time. I gotta see another video. Someone liked my picture. I can only get seven likes. It's a great picture. <laughs> <laughs> At the beginning of this year, I decided to go back to my, my former habit of reading two or three books a week. I read two and a half. Do my social media checks like you know real quick around meal time. This has helped me to be a much calmer person. Turn off all the notifications on my phone. So my phone just unless it's a phone call or a text, I can, my phone gives me no notifications whatsoever. It just sits there like a little inert brick most of the time. Now there might be lots of twittery, Facebookish. Things going on, I don't know, but my phone doesn't know because all the notifications are turned off. This is a happy thing. If you call me, I'll see that notification. That's about it. I stay mostly off the news. Good to do. Little KWW all in good. Forecast is always the same anyway. Cold or rainy. You know, if a steady diet of fast food and cookies is bad for our bodies, a diet of half-truths, dishonorable jokes, ugliness, and injustice is just as bad for our minds. Did you know that the last year that they have statistics for, the CDC claims that 37% of adolescents, people under 18, had persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. I wonder where that comes from. Too much, 
TikTok and Instagram maybe. And it would look like those influencers. I hate my body because I don't look like some photoshopped tomatoes next to my Instagram. Whatever. We fill our minds with the things Paul suggests. We will have a much easier time keeping our internal balance and not falling prey to anxious thoughts. Because we have a choice. We can choose what we think about. And it's a lot easier to choose good thoughts when we have good inputs. Because I don't know a single person that likes being anxious. Anybody? Does anybody like to be anxious? Oh man, I just can't wait to get all really worked up about something <laughs> and lay awake at 3 in the morning going, why is my heart rate 120? And I know a lot of people are anxious more than just once in a great while. But I also know a lot of people who just routinely fixate on all the things that promote their anxiety instead of taking positive steps that Paul has given us to deal with it. Paul says because of Jesus, there's a better way. First, stand firm in the Lord. He's in control and he knows what's going on. He's always working for our ultimate good. Trust him. Now, don't just say you trust him. Actually trust him the same way that you trusted when you sat down in that pew this morning that it would hold you up and not collapse underneath you. That's what I mean by trust. Because I guarantee none of you, before sitting down, kind of went to the pew and went, is it a hole? I don't know. That wood's pretty old. I might go. I think I gained a couple pounds. No, of course not. You just sat down. Right? Whole family sat down in a row. Didn't think the pew was going to collapse underneath you. That's what I mean by trusting. Then, Paul tells us to pray about everything. Cry out to God. You know, you don't have to pray in fancy words. Pray it like, you know, you're bemoaning about it to your best friend over an overpriced fancy coffee drink from Starbucks. <laughs> God can take it. It's okay. Pour out your heart. And then be open and receive God's peace. And finally, once you have that peace, stop going back to the water trough and drinking up more of the things that caused your anxiety in the first place. Stop it. Instead, fill your mind with all the things that are good in this world and occupy yourself with things that are uplifting and positive and that encourage you. Push out the negative anxiety-ridden thoughts with positive, truthful, beautiful things. God did not create us for anxiety and suffering. He invites us to choose peace in Jesus, whose burden is easy and whose yoke is light. Let's pray. Father, we just live in a world that is so filled 